Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This time it's episode 145, and we're going to talk about the joy of van life. Folks, people seem to have forgotten why we're doing this, and it's because it's fun. We're also going to talk about washboard roads, and we'll have a tale from the road about the Salem Witch Museum, and a product review that's going to revisit a past product review because apparently it's hurting people, and I'll explain. (laughs) Hello everyone, welcome back. So, it's early in the morning, I'm trying to adjust to Argentinian time, which is a few hours ahead of where I live in Chicago right now, and they don't do daylight savings time, so when daylight savings time ends here in the U.S. in a little less than a week, I'm going to lose yet another hour. So I'm just trying to adjust, and uh, that's why my voice may sound a little different, because it's early in the morning, blah, 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 doesn't matter. But I couldn't think of a topic. I'm sitting here staring blankly at my screen, and as I do, I just typed van life into Google. And nearly everything that came up was negative. I mean, seriously, now I know Google has tailored results and not everybody gets the same results. I get that. But when I type in van life, this is what I see. 10 reasons why van life sucks. 10 reasons why van life sucks. Harsh realities of van life. I lived the van life. It wasn't pretty. We tried to do van life right. It broke us down. The stuff nobody tells you about van life. And a lot of these are ads. These are sponsored results. And there is apparently money to be made by crapping on van life. And, uh, you know, I am here to say no. No. Folks, van life is a wonderful thing. And it is what you make of it. And it's time that we take a step back and realize that While there has been a lot of false promotion of the amazing things van life can do for you, we maybe have shifted a little bit too far the other way where everything that's being made now is the negatives of van life. And let's just take a step and look at what this concept of van life can give us, that how it helps enrich our lives. Now, as I've said 800 times, van life to me is a big tent. It's anybody who travels or lives in a vehicle for any length of time, whether it be a weekend, a month, a decade, whatever. I am not a purist by any means. The point is that you are in a thing that can take you places. The traveling is the big point of van life for me. Although, again, I include people who live in vans that never go anywhere too. Whatever. I'm not going to be terribly consistent and I'm not going to worry about it. But think about what you have if you have a converted van or a trailer or a school bus or whatever it is that you have. You have a self-contained life support system that you can go places with. You can basically be at home everywhere. You are always home. You, You are always comfortable. You always have everything you need wherever you are. And what an amazing, freeing experience that is. Now, it's not for everybody. It's not for everybody for all time. None of that matters. That's not what we're going to focus on this week. We're going to focus on just the amazing ability to have everything you need in a portable package and take it places. And that is worth a lot. For folks like me who crave novelty who get really down when life becomes very rote and predictable, 
Van life is a cure, a panacea. It is a thing that I don't even have to be doing, but just knowing that I can makes everything better. I mean, you know, here I am doing this podcast 145 episodes in, and I am not living full-time van life. I would like to someday, but my circumstances are such that I'm not. Not only that, I'm not doing anywhere near the amount of sleeping in my van that I thought I would be, mostly due to the pandemic and then the increase in fuel prices. So I'm actually spending most of my time in a condo in Chicago, which is pretty far away from van life. Although I do spend weekends in the Tiki Bago, which, yeah, that's, that counts too. But I am still getting benefits from van life, not the podcast and all that stuff. I mean, by I am ha- I have a benefit by having a vehicle that I can go anywhere with. It makes me feel better. <laughs> it makes me feel better to know that I can just grab my keys, hop in my van, and go anywhere I want, and I am all set. It's like an escape pod. It has all the stuff I need in it. I mean, I've got running water, I've got heat, I've got a way to cook, I've got a bed, yay, a bed, and I've made it fairly comfortable, which is important. I have a supply of food, I have change of clothes, I have entertainment. All this stuff is with me all the time. And it's like a a Swiss army knife of life. A Swiss army life? Nah, I don't even like Swiss army knives. Let's call it the leather man of life. Ah, that has the wrong connotations too. Now, if you're old enough, you may remember a book called The Joy of Sex. (laughs) This book was a huge deal when it came out, and it came out either way before I was born or right about the time I was born. And a whole lot of people my age learned a lot about sex from this book. But this book was kind of groundbreaking, not in that it talked about sex, frankly. There were other books that did that. Not that it was illustrated. There were other books that were illustrated. There were some that were just illustrated. Now, what was interesting about The Joy of Sex was the title, The Joy of Sex. This book came out at a time where sex was kind of still this thing that was not really talked about in polite company and, you know, oh, it's kind of not, you know, we don't really... And finally, people were like, hey, what's wrong with sex? And I feel like that's where we live now. It's like sex is a normal part of life. People do it in vans. People do it in the woods. People do it at home. And we can talk about it a little bit more freely. You know, it's still the cause of many titters. But maybe it's time for one of those moments in van life now too. The joy of van life. So I went back to Google and instead of just typing in van life, I typed in the joy of van life and look at what I found. How Van Life Brings Me Joy Every Day. The Unexpected Joys and Sorrows of Van Life. How Van Life Has Changed My Perspective on Life. Old Rigs, Dirt Roads, and the Surprising Joy of Solitude. I mean, folks, there are a lot of people who are really having a lot of fun in van life. And if you're not doing van life right now, if you're just on the fence and you're a little worried about all these articles about how horrible van life is... I'm going to ask you to just keep them in mind and put them aside and spend a little time focusing on the amazing parts of van life. Why are so many people doing this? There's a reason for it. And it's not all just hype. It's not all just Instagram photos making people dive into something that they're ill-prepared for and then hating it, which those people exist. Of course they do. No, there's a lot of people, and you can be one of them, who do their research 
make the best decisions they can, and then dive into van life, and then deal with whatever obstacles are in their way and have the experiences that are possible with van life. You can learn to enjoy solitude. You can meet new people and have new experiences. You can see places you could never see before. You can open your door at 3.30 a.m. in a place where you never thought you'd be and just sit and observe and listen and have experiences that you could never, ever have if you just lived in a sticks and bricks house your whole life. These are the kind of things that attract me to van life. Another part of van life is that it lets you focus on what's important in life. Minimalism, you hear that term a lot. It is has become kind of a buzzword and a little bit culty. There are people trying to do extreme minimalism and all that. I am not a big fan of strict rules and stuff like that. I like the concept of minimalism, but what van life will do regardless of whoever you are or whatever your goals are is teach you about what is actually important to you because you don't have the abundance of resources you have in a house in a van and you start to look at them differently. You don't have an unlimited supply of water. And you realize your relationship with water is very important and yet not as secure as maybe you once thought. You will at some point run out of water or something will happen to your water. It will go bad or it will freeze. And this enhances your relationship with water. I know that sounds silly, but really you have these moments where you're like, nothing in the world is better than coming in out of the cold and sitting on my damp bed in a nice warm van. It's true. It's one of the things that camping has always done for people is it gets you out of your bubble and it opens your eyes to new experiences. And van life offers that in spades because it's so customizable and it's so what you want it to be. So that's it. No great huge revelation here. But just take a moment to take a step back and however frustrated you might be with van life or if you're not diving in yet and you're worried about all these articles about how van life sucks, it doesn't. I mean, it can. And there are definitely times that it sucks. And I certainly have mentioned many of the times it has sucked for me. But in the end, van life is an enhancement for your life. I encourage you to at least consider it, if not try it outright. Tech Talk. I got a lovely email from Stephanie, who lives in a converted shuttle bus. Hello, Stephanie. Thank you very much for the email. And Stephanie had two questions for me, and I will answer them both, but I'm only going to pick one for this episode. And that is washboard roads. Now, you guys probably have encountered these. I think just about everybody who has ever driven on a dirt road knows what a washboard road is. But I will explain just in case. Um, these are roads, dirt roads, that have ridges on them that resemble an old-fashioned washboard that was used in a wash tub, now considered a musical instrument for some reason. And they're very difficult to drive on. When you drive on these roads, they, they make your vehicle go... And you can only go really, really slow. They shake everything, and they can actually do a lot of damage. And Stephanie was asking, like, why does this happen and what can we do about it? Well, the why it happens is actually fascinating and a subject of much research without a whole lot of answers. I'm going to link in the show notes a link to a Skeptoid article, which uh, I know, I promote Skeptoid a lot. I'm on their board. I'm friends with the podcast host, Brian. But 
I, that's not why I'm talking about them so much. It's because Brian does really good research into stuff, and he has the best article I've ever seen on washboards. So not to inflate his ever-increasing ego, but still, this is an excellent article on washboard roads, and you should check it out. Or you can just Google Skeptoid washboard, and you'll find it. Definitely check this out if you want to understand washboards. But the, the gist of it is... The old truism that modern suspensions cause washboard roads is actually not true. Washboard roads have existed long before there were modern suspensions. And in fact, washboard roads, that concept of flat surfaces becoming ridged, exists in many other materials, including concrete, train rails, believe it or not, over time can get a washboard effect, and even asphalt. Which brings us to why we use asphalt. Why do we use asphalt? It seems like kind of a stupid material to use. I mean, it, it, it turns into potholes, it can melt in the high heat, and the reason we use asphalt, well, it's two reasons. One, it's relatively inexpensive. The other is that it's flexible, and it doesn't washboard as much because of its flexibility, it will start to form washboards and then heat up and then even out again. So it actually can accommodate that washboard phenomenon, as well as frost-free cycle and all that, Anyway, that's a whole other topic. All that aside, we still have washboards to deal with, so what do we do? Well, as Brian suggests, and he's absolutely right, the best way to deal with washboard roads, if you can, is to air down your tires. Lower the air pressure in your tires as much as you can. And of course, you have to have a way to air them back up when you're back on the highway, so I always recommend everybody travel with an air compressor of some sort. But that's going to be your best guard against washboard roads. Failing that, there are two other strategies. One is drive very slowly, and by very slowly, I mean like five miles an hour. And that's not often convenient. If you've got 20 miles of washboard roads to handle, mm, yeah, five miles an hour is not going to be too great. The other is to drive recklessly fast. And while I don't recommend this, because remember that, that word reckless is in there? Yeah, that's not a good thing. It does work you can drive your vehicle fast enough over washboard roads that it just kind of skips across the highs of the ridges and doesn't you're going so fast the wheels don't have time to fall into the ruts and you just kind of cruise along the problem is that if you have to make a sudden turn or anything you you can't <laughs> your vehicle's basically going to go straight no matter what you want so i don't recommend that but that's all we've got, folks. The problem of washboard roads has really not been solved. Those are the only things we have. So um, a quick story, and this is not my tale from the road, but um, when I was driving the Tiki Bago, 1972 Winnebago Indian, uh, I was driving it from Oregon to Illinois. I got stuck on I-80. I-80 was closed, and I looked at the map, and there was a frontage road that went around the, the block, and this was in South Dakota, I think. Well, that frontage road wasn't paved. It turned out it was the worst washboard road I had ever been on, and it was frozen, and I was in a 50-year-old vehicle, and I shook the heck out of that thing, and I think I did a lot of damage to it. When I actually finally arrived in Illinois, I found that the walls were separated from the body. I could actually see daylight. If I looked down the side of the walls inside the Winnebago, I could see daylight through the floor. A lot of things fell off the walls, and I'm talking about things that were screwed in and had been screwed in for 50 years. So, washboard roads are a serious thing. This isn't just an annoyance. They can actually cause real damage. But all we can do right now to mitigate that is to air down the tires and go slow.
So thank you, Stephanie. That was an interesting thing to talk about, and I appreciate you bringing that up to me. Tales from the Road. So Halloween is over, and being that I grew up in Salem, Massachusetts, it always brings back all these memories, and people ask questions and stuff, and I would go to the Salem Witch Museum often, and I thought maybe that would be an interesting tale from the road. In uh, downtown Salem, there's a place called Salem Common that used to actually have uh, hills and ponds. And a common, back in the day, was a place where people could bring livestock. It was common land that people were allowed to use for grazing and such. And that's what Salem Common was. But at some point, they pushed the hills into the ponds and leveled it all. And it's just this really big park in the center of the city. And on one corner of the park, there is this giant statue that all the visitors think is, it's, look, it's a statue of a witch. Well, it's not. It's a statue of Roger Conant, the first European person to settle in Salem. And he is dressed wearing, quote unquote, a witch's hat. And it's kind of funny. What he's wearing is a hat with a big buckle on it. And the reason he's wearing that is because when that statue was put up in the late 19th century, that's what people thought people dressed like in the 17th century. <laughs> in fact, it's not at all. It's not even close. It's a, it's a style of dress that existed for maybe 10 years, but it was thought of as what old people wore. And therefore, this poor guy, Roger Conant, has this big statue of him, and everyone thinks he was a witch, even though he died well before the witch hysteria. And he never dressed like that. Anyway, it's an iconic symbol of Salem, but what's in the background of that, if you take a picture of Roger Conant, is the Salem Witch Museum. Now, the Salem Witch Museum's history goes way back. Yes, Salem is famous for all its hocus-pocus haunted happenings and all that now, but when I was living there as a kid in the 70s and 80s, that stuff hadn't gotten started yet. And really, the only thing that was like that was the Salem Witch Museum. And even that wasn't like that. So the Salem Witch Museum was an old defunct church. It was a Unitarian church in this big brick edifice with these two towers and this kind of menacing roof. It, it's kind of a creepy looking place on its own. And in fact, in the game Fallout 4, the Witch Museum is in the game. And uh, well, there's something in the basement, shall we say, that kind of <laughs> lends to this creepy feeling. And that's why it became a tourist trap. It's a 1950s-style tourist trap. That's what it has always been, in my recollection. You would go into the Salem Witch Museum, and the first thing you would see after you paid your admission price was a glowing red pentangle on the floor with all these Jewish characters and Latin words around the side, and it would just pulsate and glow, and it was actually really cool. It was like stained glass in the floor, and that was the waiting room, and you would wait in there until it was time to go see the show. And the show was actually a fairly accurate depiction of what happened in 1692 in Salem, and it was done with shadow boxes. It's kind of a neat old technique that you don't see all that much anymore. I mean, if you think about it, it's, it's a lot of the Disney attractions, like the Haunted Mansion and, to some extent, Pirates of the Caribbean, before they were all animated like they were. They're kind of the same idea. You had these kind of stages where things would happen often just by changing the lighting. 
and nothing really moved. You would actually move around the room with your eyes. It was a round room and go from stage to stage as the story unfolded. And then when it was done, the lights would come on, a door would open and voila, you're in the gift shop, which of course is how the thing ended. And that's the Salem Witch Museum experience. But I went back in the 2000s and it had changed somewhat because in a strange twist, the tourist attraction, the tourist trap of the Salem Witch Museum was bought by a Wiccan sect. So witches bought the Salem Witch Museum and unfortunately, or perhaps fortunately, depending on your perspective, they took out the glowing pentangle because they thought that was sacrilegious. They saw that as an actual religious object and having people walk over it, well, they didn't like that. So they replaced it, thankfully, with a memorial to the names of the victims of the witch hysteria. And I don't even like that word anymore. Let's call it the witch trials. I didn't even like the word witch. It was, it was, this had nothing to do with witches. This had to do with greed and the abuse of religion. I mean, that's really all that was going on there. And anyway, now you have this big glowing red thing with the names of the victims on it, and you walk on that. I don't know that that's a better message. But at any rate, the Salem Witch Museum is kind of a, an iconic, classic place in Salem. I think a lot of people looking for the sideshow carnival atmosphere that Salem has become, especially in October, are going to be disappointed in the Witch Museum because, well, it's historic at this point. It's 75 years old, and it kind of looks it. But to me, I, I still like it. It's something I grew up with. It's nostalgic. And, you know, go ahead, take a look. But I still think you should avoid Salem in October. <laughs> I think you should go at another time of year and spend time exploring the nautical history of Salem. And it, Salem was a major influence on the development of the United States. There's a lot to learn there. And I think that the current hype over the Hocus Pocus world has kind of taken away from that. And that makes me a little sad. Product review. So the folding step stool, if you remember last week I said, everyone needs to get this folding step stool. And I still believe that, but I got a comment on the podcast on Podbean basically saying these stools break and hurt people. And uh, well, that's a concern. So I don't know exactly which step stool the person in the comments had, but she claimed that she's 110 pounds and these things support 250 pounds and hers broke on her and she injured herself and she's heard this story many times from other people. So let's take a step back and say, I do recommend some folding step stools, but I don't really have a brand name that I recommend. Just having one of these things is really useful for van life. There's no question about that. But obviously you want to be safe. So I'm going to put a link in the show notes to a very specific one that I believe is a good quality one. I don't know that it's the same one that I have. I can tell you I have had one of these for over 10 years. I haven't taken particularly good care of it. I weigh 250 pounds and the thing has never had any sign of cracking or anything. So this one that I'm recommending is a brand name called Spranster, which doesn't encourage me too much, but it holds up to 300 pounds and it looks exactly like the one I have. It's only $10. This thing isn't terribly expensive. And it, it's also white. 
Now, I do recommend the white ones over the black ones because they're less likely to get left behind because they're more visible. The black ones might hide dirt better, that's true, but they're also going to suffer from more UV degradation and um, just because they're black, you're likely to leave them behind. These things are only nine inches tall, which doesn't sound like a lot, but nine inches can be a big help if you're just trying to do things like wash your windows. So I think this is a good one. It has 1,759 ratings, and yes, I know Amazon ratings aren't always reliable, but using Bayesian analysis of ratings, this one looks like it's pretty good. One thing, though, that I will mention is make sure you inspect this thing every once in a while. Um, you know, it's a piece of plastic. It's, it should actually be made out of resin rather than plastic. It's a bit stronger than most plastics. Make sure it has the skid-resistant feet on it, as this one does. And, you know, take a look every once in a while and make sure there aren't any cracks. Make sure the hinges are connected and all that. And, you know, step on it gingerly the first time. Make sure it's going to hold your weight. So, yeah, I'm sorry for anyone who bought one of these and was injured on it. I think that's terrible, and I hope you should go after the manufacturer because that shouldn't be. But they're not all like that, and I think the one that I am linking to in the show notes by Spranster is a good one. And please let me know if it's not. I'm sorry, you're going to have to be my guinea pigs. <laughs> a place to visit. So most of you have probably heard of the Winchester Mystery House, and I have been there a few times. And I do recommend that people visit there. But, and I will say this many, many times, it is a tourist trap now. It wasn't originally, it wasn't created to be a tourist trap, just like the Salem Witch Museum was originally a church. This was originally simply a woman's home. And the mystery part is why she built her home so wacky. Now, if you're not familiar with the Winchester Mystery House, well, you're probably from the East Coast, but um, if you are, if you aren't, I'll, I'll explain it. It's just, it's this house that's enormous, that it's like, it's like if some kid who was really good at Minecraft and was like seven years old built a house. It just, room attaches to room, it goes up, it goes down, it goes all over the place. There's doors that open into walls, staircases that go into ceilings and don't go anywhere. And over the years... It has developed into this big mythos of why it's like that. Now, the place was built by Sarah Winchester. You may know the name Winchester from the Winchester Repeating Rifle. That's where the money came from to build this house. And her husband died. She was left with all this money and moved to relatively rural San Jose, California and built this house and never stopped. So there are a couple of theories as to why she built this house. The one that you'll see on the tour, unfortunately, and if you look at their website today anyway, it's all about the haunted tours and the Halloween and spirits and all this. Well, that's one of the theories. She built this house this way on purpose to confuse the ghosts of all the people killed by the Winchester repeating rifle that were after her. So the ghosts would enter the house and go up the stairs and hit the ceiling and not know what to do, or they'd be frustrated by the little tiny steps, or they'd go through a door into a room that had no exits, all this kind of stuff, blah, 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 blah. And uh, no, I, I don't think that's the most plausible explanation. In fact, there's very little evidence at all that Sarah Winchester was even interested in the paranormal or the occult or anything like that. Now, a more likely explanation is that she was a lonely old woman. And she liked having people around, and one way to have people around was to keep building the house. You may have heard the expression, it's better to travel than arrive, something that fits tightly with van life. This may have been what she was doing. She never wanted the house to be finished, because if it was finished, 
she would have to focus on something else, and if it wasn't finished, she could focus on finishing it. It's a little bit of unusual psychology there, but it's actually not that unusual. And a couple of things happened. One thing was there was a major earthquake in 1906. The San Francisco earthquake affected this house and damaged a bunch of it, and it had to be rebuilt, and that accounts for some of the strange things. The other is that she changed her mind a lot, and she would move rooms around, and, well, that meant that staircases suddenly didn't go anywhere, and they used to, and things like that. As for the little tiny steps, well, as she got older, she had arthritis, and she couldn't lift her legs as much, so she had them put in tiny steps so she could get to where she needed to go. At any rate, all this aside, remember that tour guides are often entertainers rather than historians. Their purpose, as they see it, is to entertain you, not necessarily give you the facts. So if you go to the Winchester Mystery House, do some research onto its actual history, or at least its presumed accurate history. And if you like the spook stuff, fine, go and enjoy that, but, but don't think it's real. Regardless, the place is fascinating to see. It's a wonderful example of this type of architecture. It's it is very strange. I mean, it's, it's really just kind of weird to walk around. And the grounds are really nice, too. So it's in San Jose, California, which is now not rural in the least. And I'll have a link in the show notes, but it is really not hard to find. I'm pretty sure you could just go into Apple Maps or Google Maps and say, hey, navigate to the Winchester Mystery House, and by magic, it will take you there. Resource Recommendation I don't know how many of my listeners are also creators. I don't know how many of you have YouTube channels or podcasts or anything. I, I don't. But I know that some of you are. And one of the constant frustrations for me as someone who's trying to be honest is finding assets that I can use, like music and graphics and video. And I'm trying to be as honest as I can about that. I'm not just stealing images and putting them up. I obey the laws of the co um, Creative Commons and copyright, and I do that as much as I can. Uh, you may have noticed the music is by Simon Wagg, who is my son, and I have permission to use his music, you know, that kind of a thing. But for stuff that I'm working on on YouTube especially, I am looking for good quality stuff that I can use and that I have a whole big wide variety of access to. And what I've been using for that is a website called Envato, E-N-V-A-T-O. No, this is not sponsored, although I will have an affiliate link in the show notes. Envato is a collection of stock everything. They have stock music, stock videos, stock graphics, stock templates, all this kind of stuff. It's all there. And you can just search through and say, I need a picture of a van on a beach. And you go in and you type in van on a beach and it gives you all these options. And for one subscription price, you can just use them all you want. You don't have to give any credits to anybody. You don't have to pay royalties. You don't have to worry about copyright. And that's it. And I love it. Now, it's not very inexpensive. You can pay per piece, which I don't think is worth doing. But if you're willing to spend $200 a year, this can be useful. And for me, it's actually worth it. And, and it works great. It works very simply. What you do is you go in and type Van on a Beach, and you find a video clip that you want to use, and then you hit download, and you assign it to a project. So let's say I'm making a video about driving on a beach with your van. I would take that clip, assign it to that, download it, and then I have the actual file. There's no copy protection or anything. I can just use that file in any of my editing programs, and boom, I put it up. Now, as many of you know, 
YouTube scours your material looking for copyright violations. And it will sometimes find these Envato clips and say, nope, that belongs to somebody else. But Envato has a way to get through that. There's a few different ways you can register it so that YouTube will either ignore it or you go through a very simple process of saying, no, I actually have a license for this. Here's my Envato license. And then problem solved, no more copyright strike. I have had it happen a few times with my stuff and it's always been resolved very quickly. So I can heartily recommend Envato. It was exactly what I was looking for. It doesn't have a lot of the problems that the other services have and it has enough stuff that I can always find something, uh, especially music. There is so much music that you can pretty much find anything you want. And you, you can search in things like... I want happy music of at least 500 beats per minute, blah, blah, and, and it'll, it'll narrow it down. Or I don't want any drums. I only want vocals and strings, and it will find that. So give it a look. It's called Envato, and I'll have a link in the show notes. That's an affiliate link, and if you use that link and you actually sign up, I get a little something that helps me produce the podcast. But however you get there, it's called Envato, and you can Google it and find it. And for creative types, I think it's a very good thing. So this is my last podcast I'm doing as a normal podcast for a while. Uh, my next three are going to be done while I'm on my way to Antarctica, or actually in Antarctica. And based on the poll, I will be talking about Antarctica. So my next three podcasts, I'm actually not going to number them. I'm going to call them like Antarctica 1 through 3 or whatever. So just be aware of that. If you're not interested at all in that, then hey, you've got three weeks off and you can come back at the end of November. If you want to learn even more about my trip to Antarctica, you can actually go to collegeofcuriosity.com and I will have a link there to my daily travelogue of what I'm going through to get to Antarctica and to being in Antarctica and all that kind of stuff. Very excited about this trip. It's kind of all I've been focused on for a long time. And I think you van lifer folks might like this. I'm going to be very frank about the trip and I'm going to talk a lot about how much it costs, how to navigate some of the troubles, how uncomfortable it is to cross Drake Passage and all that kind of stuff. So if you'd like to join me, visit collegeofcuriosity.com. I will have a link in the show notes. But that wraps up episode 145. Music, as always, is by Simon Wagg. And if you need to get a hold of me, knowing that it might take a long time and I'm not the world's greatest correspondent, you can find me at jeff at builttogo.com. That's two T's, not three, not one. Until next time, remember the words of John Krakauer. Antarctica has this mythic weight. It resides in the collective unconscious of so many people, and it makes this huge impact, just like outer space. It's like going to the moon.